Welcome to Night Night Bitch. I'm your host, Molly, your guide to awe-inspiring texts read by me or in the voices of their original creators. Please know I don't own any of this content. It's all freely accessible online and duly cited in my episode descriptions for your reference. This podcast is a creative outlet for me, so I don't update it as regularly. But if you'd like to subscribe to my other podcast, Back From The Borderline, I release two thought-provoking episodes each week. And now, let's dive into the episode. Welcome. It's time to rest your weary mind, unwind, escape the matrix, and explore the arcane. We live in a culture that is rapidly losing its grasp on myth and meaning. Exploration of philosophy, depth psychology, esotericism, the occult, myth, and mysticism have been proven to inspire awe. Such experiences of daily awe have been shown to be psychologically beneficial and aid in the potential expansion of consciousness. Each time we're here together, I'll select a reading, article, or sample audio that could increase your opportunity for such experiences. While you listen, you might fall asleep. You might wake up. You might do both. Maybe finding the perfect balance between awake and dreaming is exactly what you always needed. Night night bitch. This is the exercise for your own development process designed by you. You should be hearing my voice in your right ear. Remember the purpose, your purpose for this exercise. And begin your pre-preparation process now. The affirmation beginning, I am more than my physical body. Welcome back to our reading of Manly P. Hall's The Wisdom of the Knowing Ones. Today, we will be reading Chapter 3, Alexandria, The Cradle of Western Mysticism. But I suppose for this, it might be best if we travel in our minds to Alexandria, Egypt. Ah, much better. Without further ado, let's dive into chapter three. It's not within the scope of the present work to attempt a formal history of Alexandria. It was involved from its beginning in the conflicts raging in the areas adjacent to the Mediterranean, 
ambitious leaders battled with each other over disputed territories, and in the brief interludes between wars, conspiracies and seditions were the order of the day. Under the Ptolemies, every effort was made to avoid involvement in the political upheavals of neighboring countries. Unfortunately, dissension arose within the city itself, and these finally increased to major proportions. Historical accounts are dismal reading, but we can concern ourselves only with the religions and philosophies of this great city, which during its golden age had a population of approximately one half million. Most of the religious groups were divided according to the old mystery system. There was an outer teaching for the uninitiated and an inner teaching available only to those who had bound themselves to secrecy by most solemn obligations. The Egyptian mysteries had a limited autonomy and those who passed through them certainly received privileged instruction. The Greek schools followed a similar procedure as did the Jewish and most especially the Gnostics. After the introduction of Christianity, this group also held its sacred beliefs in private. As a result, the city was always permeated with esoteric doctrines of one kind or another. Every government stands in fear of secret societies. While their numbers might be small, their power was magnified simply because of the uncertainties which surrounded them. To further complicate the matter, there were overlapping memberships and it was difficult to tell where basic allegiances rested. The Ptolemies were confronted with this unpleasant situation and the dilemma descended as a disturbing heritage upon the Romans. When it was deemed prudent to weed out troublesome sects, it was next to impossible to identify the membership with certainty. The philosophical schools with their more temperate approach to learning were tolerated, but learning itself, with its high moral and ethical standards, was viewed with suspicion by the less informed. Actually, the government had little in common with Platonism or Neoplatonism for both these systems venerated God with a full spirit, whereas Ptolemy was a mortal man who could demand only temporal allegiance. This attitude was also unacceptable to the Romans who realized that a secret government of an enlightened few might someday challenge the supremacy of the Caesars. The monotheism of the Jews, the pantheism of the Greeks and Egyptians, and the Trinitarianism of the Christian community mingled together, giving rise to a number of exoteric sects. Thus personified through their teachings, the sages of many lands assembled in Egypt to die a second time. Officially. Serapis was the weeping god of Alexandria 
and his tears were more than justified. It was hoped that this compound divinity would be acceptable to the populace in general. There's an interesting statement in The Golden Age of Alexandria by John Marlowe, published in 1971. Of the deities of Hellenism, Isis of the myriad names was probably the greatest. She was the lady of all, all-seeing and all-powerful, queen of the inhabited world, star of the sea, diadem of life, lawgiver and savior. She was grace and beauty, fortune and abundance, truth, wisdom, and love. All civilization was in her gift and in her charge. It was easy for members of all the Alexandrian sects to revere Isis under one of her appellations, for her equivalent was to be found in every faith. Even when Christianity came into vogue, a similarity was traced between the sad-faced Serapis and the crucified Messiah, and Isis was identified with the Virgin Mary. Public celebrations cut through the conflicts of beliefs. Calixenus was a witness to one of the great state festivals of Alexandria. Ebers paraphrases the report of Calixenus, which writes, The procession with the mythological impersonations must have been interminably long. In the time of the native kings, the ancestral images of the Egyptian gods and pharaohs had been introduced, and in the same way the gods of Olympus with the Macedonian princes, Alexander the Great, Ptolemy Soter, and his son, Philadelphus, were now represented. To add to the delights of the feast, splendid sham fights were held, where the victors, and among them the king, received golden crowns as prizes. One such feast day under the Ptolemies cost between 300,000 pounds and 400,000 pounds, and how enormous must the sums have been which they expended on their fleet, 800 splendid Nile boats lie in the inner harbor of the lake Maratoas alone, on the army, on the court, on the museum and library. The Ptolemies were not above intrigues and other misdemeanors, but the earliest ones at least were strong and gifted men. Ptolemy Soter maintained a modest establishment on the assumption that it was right to bestow grandeur, but not to heap it upon himself. He remained on good terms with the state religion of Egypt and was probably initiated into some of their rites. He counted on the Egyptian priests to cooperate with the Greek regime, as they had for thousands of years supported the governments of the native pharaohs. It was not until the Greek influence had begun to wane that lawlessness troubled Alexandria. Ptolemy Soter had been a general in the armies of Alexander the Great, and from years of military life, 
he had learned how to discipline himself and those associated with him. When the later rulers were unable to maintain law and order among Alexandrians, they appealed to Rome for assistance, which was graciously extended. But this help ended, as might be expected in the Romans taking control of the city. This led to the involvement of the Alexandrians in the predicaments through which the Romans themselves were passing. Rome at that time was a mistress of the civilized world with a huge colonization program. Alexandria, which had been content to unfold its internal culture, was unfit for the subtleties of power politics. It had hoped to remain a sheltered abode of learning, but the Romans were of different metal. They were far more concerned in conquering the world than in conquering their own ambition and appetites. The city of Alexandria was founded in 331 or 332 BC by Alexander the Great. The Macedonian conqueror assembled a group of skilled architects and artisans. These were resolved to create a metropolis of such grandeur that it would be truly the greatest wonder of the world. Alexander did not live to see the city he had planned, but he may have been buried there. For several reasons not entirely sentimental, the embalmed remains of Alexander were placed in a coffin of gold and Ptolemy Soter contrived to have them brought to Egypt. A magnificent mausoleum known as the Soma was prepared to receive Alexander's remains. One of the later Ptolemies, in need of funds, substituted a glass coffin for the golden original. The Soma was also the place of internment for the Greek pharaohs reigning in Egypt, but no vestige of the building has survived to this day. The expansion and beautification of Alexandria passed to the Greek pharaohs of Egypt. The first of these, Ptolemy Soter, was largely responsible for the perfection of the original scheme, and the work was carried on by his successor, Ptolemy Philadelphus. During the reign of these two kings, the Bruchion, the most famous museum, was completed, and when Ptolemy Philadelphus died, the collection of manuscripts exceeded 100,000 items. Through the industry of Callimachus, the collection was classified and labeled, and by the time of Julius Caesar, the Library of Alexandria contained over 750,000 items. When Caesar besieged Alexandria, the Prussian was destroyed. H.P. Blavatsky was well acquainted with Coptic Christianity, and from those who held her friendship, she gathered a number of details concerning the fate of the great Alexandrian library. She tells us that several hours elapsed between the burning of the fleet, as ordered by Julius Caesar, and the spreading of the fire to the city. In this precious interval, 
librarians and servants attached to the Prussian saved the most precious of the scrolls. The parchments had been fireproofed, and even after the conflagration, numerous scrolls were found intact, although their bindings had been destroyed. Many works were saved also by the circumstance that they had been moved to the house of the principal librarian for reconditioning. Because of a prophecy that the library would be destroyed, the most important records were gradually spirited away, and there are Arabic accounts that they were hidden in a subterranean temple some distance from Alexandria. Almost immediately after the destruction, a restoration was enterprised and Mark Anthony presented Alexandria with the Paramine Library, consisting of approximately 200,000 manuscripts. Among the famous scholars who availed themselves of the facilities of the Alexandrian collection were Aristothenes, Strabo, Hipparchus, Archimedes, and Euclid. The Serapium was also built by Ptolemy Soter in honor of the Egyptian deity Serapis. It was a most extraordinary complex of buildings and contained remarkable statuary and diversified works of art. The library of the Serapium housed about 300,000 manuscripts and was burned by order of the Caliph Omar in 641 AD. Details of this event can be found in Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. There's a legend not sustained by any strong evidence that the manuscripts in the Serapium were used as fuel to heat the public baths of Alexandria. After the Muslim conquest, the importance of Alexandria as a center of learning gradually diminished, and for nearly a thousand years, it languished on the delta of the Nile all but forgotten. Alexander the Great ordered that all persons living in the vicinity of Alexandria should move into the city, and these were principally Egyptians. With the passing of time, however, and through the inducements offered by the various Ptolemies, Greeks, Romans, and Jews settled in various sections of the city. As a result of its strategic location, Elements of Asiatic culture found a secure footing in this ancient metropolis. The result was a diversified populace, which provided a suitable atmosphere for the advancement of learning and the intermingling of several streams of religious, philosophical, and scientific beliefs. From the beginning, Alexandria offered an appropriate atmosphere for scholarship. It was probably the first important polyglot system of culture known to men. It drew to itself persons of extraordinary attainments who appreciated the opportunity to improve their knowledge and deepen their insight. Etienne Vacherot, in his works published in Paris in 1856, summarizes the place of this ancient city in the spiritual life of humanity. He wrote, Alexandria at the time Ammonius Saccas began to teach had become the sanctuary of universal wisdom. The asylum of the old tradition of the East, 
It was at the same time the birthplace of new doctrines. It was at Alexandria that the school of Philo represented the Hellenizing Judaism. It was at Alexandria that the Gnosis synthesized all the tradition of Syria, Chaldea, and Persia, blended with Judaism, with Christianity, and even with Greek philosophy. The school of the Alexandrian fathers raised Christian thought to a height which was to not surpass and which was to strike fear into the hearts of the orthodoxy of the councils. A strong life flowed in the veins of all of these schools and vitalized all their discussions. Philo, Basilides, Valentinus, St. Clement and Origen opened up for the mind new vistas of thought and unveiled for it mysteries which a genius of a Plato or an Aristotle had never even fathomed. Alexandria was not only a center of religious and philosophical scholarship, but also a seed ground for scientific research and in A History of the Ancient World, George Willis Botsford, professor of history at Columbia University writes, the campaigns of Alexander had greatly enlarged the bounds of geographical knowledge and had stimulated men to explore other regions then unknown. The new information they gathered was published in geographies. Greek scientists had long believed the earth to be round. And now, one of the most famous geographers computed its circumference at about 28,000 English miles, which is remarkably near the truth. He believed too that the opposite side of the world was inhabited and that India could be reached by sailing west across the Atlantic were it possible to make so long a voyage. Similar advances were made in astronomy. It was found that the sun is many times as large as earth and that the earth revolves on its axis around the sun. This truth was rejected, however, by most scientists of the day in favor of the view afterward known as the Ptolemaic system, which represents the Earth as the center of the universe. A certain physiologist found that the brain is the seat of the mind and that the nerves are of two kinds for conveying the feeling and the will respectively. He discovered too the circulation of the blood Many of these truths were rejected at the time or soon forgotten to be rediscovered in recent years. In the same age, the practice of medicine became scientific and surgeons acquired great skill. The geographer referred to in the above quotation was Aristothenes, the astronomer was Aristarchus, and the physiologist was Hierophilus. From the same authority, we also note that one of the kings of Egypt founded a zoological park in which he and his successors gathered many varieties of animals from all known parts of the earth. Many scholars were attracted by the collection and wrote works on zoology and botany. These advancements took place during the so-called Alexandrian Age, extending from 323 to 140 BC. Claudius Ptolemy of Alexandria was an outstanding mathematician, geographer, astronomer, and astrologer. 
living in Alexandria, he had ample opportunity to benefit by the discoveries and speculations of Alexandrian scholars. He remained true, however, to the geocentric system of astronomy and is responsible, at least in part, for the modern conflict between astronomy and astrology. By tying the solar system to the mythology of the ancients, he provided an analogical pattern which may be best described as a psychological astronomy. The mystery deepens when we attempt to interpret psychological elements of Alexandrian thought. Dominated largely by the prevailing mysticism, a number of books and essays came into existence which defy the common rules of scholarly writing. Milton S. Terry, in his remarkable book, The Cybelline Oracles, referring to collections of ancient prophecies, writes, they belong to that large body of pseudepocryphal literature which originated near the beginning of the Christian era, about BC 150 to AD 300, which consists of such works as the Book of Enoch, the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, the Book of Jubilees, the Assumption of Moses, the Psalms of Solomon, the Ascension of Isaiah, and the Second Book of Esdras. The production of this class of literature was most notable at Alexandria in the time of the Ptolemies. The influence of Greek civilization and culture upon the large Jewish population of the Egyptian metropolis and the marked favors shown this people in that country turned them far from the strict usages of their Palestinian brethren. Professor Terry's list could be considerably expanded Several other apocryphal works of the Old and New Testaments can be traced to the same source. Possibly the most important is the Hermetic literature, which is believed to have appeared in the 1st or 2nd century AD. The Egyptian deity Doth was combined with the Greek Hermes to produce the semi-mythological deity of universal wisdom, Doth Hermes Trismegistus. It has never been finally decided whether the author of the Hermetic literature ever actually existed or whether he was used in an allegorical sense. If he was truly the embodiment of all learning, he might be regarded as the author of all the books in the world. Scholars are now the opinion that the Hermetic writings show strong Greek and Egyptian influences. Isaac Kausabon, writing in the 17th century, was convinced that the original Hermetic philosophy involved the blending of Platonism, the teaching of the Stoics, and Oriental concepts. As time went on, the mystical theology set forth in the Pymander was expanded to include alchemy, Kabbalism, and ceremonial magic. It was not until the Renaissance that the conviction arose that the Greco-Egyptian Hermes was actually a divinely enlightened person and efforts were made to create a pseudo-biography for him. While it's quite possible that a marvelously enlightened philosopher mystic did actually exist, the situation will probably never be completely clarified. The Hermetic dialogues are devoted largely to a reconciliation of Grecian and Egyptian esoteric teachings. There seems no doubt that they were written or compiled in Alexandria. 
The supreme initiator was a thinly veiled representation of the Egyptian deity Thoth, who embodied the highest aspects of wisdom. The hermetic approach was scholarly and scientific and emphasized the highest ethical and moral aspects of learning. Hermeticism may embody parts of the teaching of the Egyptian mysteries. As these were similar to the secret rites of the Greeks, there was little conflict and they helped to reconcile the aspirations of the Greek and Egyptian communities. Although these works may have been compiled in the early centuries AD, they contain little or no trace of Christian influence. With the decline of the mystery school systems, Hermetic philosophy lost its distinguishing stamp and gradually faded out of Alexandrian culture. It certainly intrigued some of the early Christian teachers and traces of the doctrine have survived in modern mysticism. The Christian community in Alexandria gained importance with the passing of time. It's said that St. Mark preached there about 40 AD and this belief is firmly supported by the Coptic Christians. After the death of St. Mark in 62 AD, his body was buried in Alexandria, but it was later stolen by Venetian traders who carried the remains to Venice and enshrined them in the Cathedral Church of St. Mark's. As a result of the preaching of St. Mark, a formal Christian school was established at Alexandria, this is probably the earliest Christian institution of its kind. During the Antinicene period, the various nationalities and religions had a comparatively pleasant relationship. Freedom of thought and belief has both advantages and disadvantages. In a tolerant atmosphere, scholarship flourishes. But there is also danger that excessive doctrines will arise and flourish at the expense of the public good. Jewish mysticism found its most able spokesman in Philo Judaeus, a learned exponent of Greek Judaism. He was a reconciling force between the communities, though it was inevitable that schisms should arise and trouble follow. For several centuries, Grecian wisdom permeated the Alexandrian atmosphere. Later, the Jewish community became more influential mingling many of its ideas with early Christianity. Egyptian influence was largely limited to architecture, but some of the older learning colored the more recent speculations. The Romans came to power shortly before the beginning of the Christian era, but their contributions were minimal. The Roman officers in Alexandria were largely concerned with collecting taxes and keeping the peace. A number of Greeks became Christian converts and transferred part of their cultural heritage to the new faith. It was inevitable that the several factions should become highly competitive and the genial atmosphere gradually faded away. Writers of the time note that the Egyptian community was never especially troublesome, but as Christianity spread, the Jews found their privileges restricted and their beliefs openly attacked. All groups, however, endured with considerable antagonism what has been called Caesarism or emperor worship. As in the Jewish colony, the Alexandrians were required to worship the emperor as their principal divinity, 
and this caused increasing tension and strife. The most outspoken of the groups that opposed Roman dominion was the Christian. And in the course of time, the Romans reacted with extraordinary severity. In the 3rd and early 4th centuries AD, three different emperors were responsible for a reign of terror. The cruelties practiced against the Christians almost defy description. With the conversion of Constantine, this pressure was lifted and the Christians found themselves enjoying, at least in part, their previous privileges. The conflict between the Romans and Christianity was grounded in expediency. It became obvious at an early date that Christianity regarded itself as the instrument of universal reformation. The Christians regarded it as their proper destiny to make their faith the supreme power on the earth. The Romans were never able to estimate the number of Christians that were spreading through their domains. News reached them of secret assemblies, even in the catacombs under the imperial city. These accounts were exaggerated and embellished with distortion and misstatement. It seems that a vast conspiracy was going on to destroy the powers of the Caesars. Mystery can be a terrible weapon. The Roman patrician might have felt that his own servants were secret Christians plotting for his destruction. There seemed no way to combat this hidden menace and spies sent out learned little or nothing, possibly because there was little or nothing to be learned. Some of these agents considered it expedient to bring back lurid accounts of horrible doings. Even today, we realize that established systems usually try to defend themselves against seditions of one kind or another. In the early years, the Christians were afraid to come out and huddle together for security. They became objects of fear. This is what finally brought Constantine the Great to convene the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Constantine realized that Christianity was spreading and might ultimately come in the open conflict with the Roman Empire. His conversion, if it actually took place at all, was not because of his devotion to Christianity. For what little faith he had, he kept in the name of Eusebius, who was secretary of the Nicene Council. Constantine wished to have Christianity brought into the open so that its followers could stand and be numbered. He was also resolved, if possible, to bind this new faith with his temporal power, so that, standing together, the state and the church could move the world. The 300 bishops and other ecclesiastics who attended the Nicene Council were for the most part fiercely religious and it never occurred to them that Constantine had ulterior motives. One happy consequence followed, however, for the persecution of Christians within the boundaries of the empire. This immediately ceased. Unfortunately, however, tragic divisions occurred within the Christian community. Several of the leading adherents came into direct conflict with each other, and verbal recriminations stirred up the populace in general, leading to outbreaks of physical violence. The philosophical groups such as the Neo-Pythagoreans, Neoplatonists, and the more learned rabbis, continued to teach with minor restrictions, but religious innovations were quickly and harshly repressed. 
Almost 300 years earlier, Vespasian visited Egypt, and it was while he was in Alexandria that the imperial purple was conferred upon him in 69 AD. While among the Alexandrians, he consulted the Oracle of Serapis on matters pertaining to the state. On this occasion, he was attended by Apollonius of Tyana, the foremost thaumaturgist of his day. Apollonius was a follower of the Pythagorean discipline, but he was also influenced by other sects flourishing in Egypt. The Egyptians held him in high esteem, and he apparently practiced astrology and other forms of divination. Due to Vespasian's admiration for Apollonius, Gnostic emblems began to appear on Alexandrian coins. The most famous version of the Old Testament was produced in Alexandria about the year 280 BC. Apparently, Demetrius of Phaleron, who was librarian of Ptolemy Philadelphus, convinced the pharaoh that a transcription of the Book of Moses should be included in the royal collection. He, therefore, sent two ambassadors to Jerusalem to gain the assistance of Lazar, who was then the high priest. As proof of his sincerity to the pharaoh brought and liberated all the Jewish slaves captured by his father, Ptolemy Soter. Eleazar selected 72 scholars, six from each of the 12 tribes, and sent them to Alexandria. The earliest Greek translation was probably limited to the Pentateuch, but by the first century AD, the Septuagint, or the version of the 70, included the complete Old Testament. Several scholars have made a point of the need of a Greek translation for the use of Jewish intellectuals. It had been suggested that the Hellenized Jewish community had accepted Greek as the language of scholarship. Sidebar for me, I am well aware that I am probably butchering a lot of these names. I'm doing my best with pronunciation, but it takes a lot to pause the podcast, look up the pronunciation, and then continue recording. So, if you are a scholar of this time period and you are hearing me butcher pronunciations, I apologize. I'm doing my best. Very little is known concerning the New Testament until the late 3rd or 4th centuries AD. Three manuscripts have derived from this period. The Codex Vaticanus, Codex Alexandriax, and the Codex Sinaiticus. These manuscripts are all in Greek and included the Old Testament according to the version of the Septuagint. May we suspect that these important manuscripts might be products of Alexandrian industry? It's impossible to know at this late date how many early biblical manuscripts were destroyed when the Serapium was completely razed in 389 AD upon the edict of the Christian bishop Theodosius. It's now positively affirmed that the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus were written in the first half of the 4th century AD. Careful study of the original works has led to speculation that the same scribes worked upon both manuscripts. Both codices are now conserved in the British Museum. The principal name associated with the Jewish community in Alexandria was Philo Judaeus. 
He was born between 20 and 16 BC in Alexandria, and in his religious studies, he followed the Septuagint version of the scriptures. Very little is known about the personal life of Philo, but it's reasonably certain that he was married. On one occasion, his wife was asked why she did not wear golden ornaments according to the style of the times, and she replied, the virtue of a husband is a sufficient ornament for a wife. He made three journeys, the first to Jerusalem, the second and third to Rome. There are reports that Philo met St. Peter and may have been converted to Christianity. It's certain that Philo was acquainted with the Essene community and wrote extensively about Essene practices. Philo is also the only source of information concerning what may have been a branch of the Essenes called the Therapeutae, a sect devoted largely to medicine and mystical contemplation. Our modern words therapy and therapeutic were derived from this extremely mysterious Egyptian order. Philo's writings consist almost entirely of commentaries and interpretations of the Septuagint version of the Old Testament and oral traditions of the early Christian community. He contributed strongly to the Hellenizing of Jewish thought and properly belongs among the adherents of philosophical mysticism. He also laid the groundwork for the introduction of Greek philosophical ideals into the writings of the Anti-Nicene Fathers. To a measure, at least, he protected classical philosophy from ecclesiastical criticism with the result that Plato and Aristotle were never repudiated by Orthodox Christianity. Philo's writings on the Essene community and related subjects have come into focus as the result of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The expansion of Christian teachings in North Africa led gradually to the foundation in the second century of what is now called the Alexandrian School. Among its early leaders, Clement and Origen were the most distinguished. Substantially, this movement was dedicated to the allegorical interpretation of the Christian mystery. This brilliant leadership of the Alexandrian School may be regarded as the earliest formal institution which advanced general learning under Christian supervision. Greek learning and Christian faith were regarded as the first line of defense against the rising tide of heresy. In 362 AD, Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria, arranged for a meeting of Christian bishops, which was known as the Synod of Alexandria. While some theological subjects were discussed, Emphasis was upon the Reed mission to the communion of certain members of the clergy who had sided with the Arians, a schismatic body which had threatened to dominate Alexandrian Christianity. In the uneasy years that followed, many religious leaders became over-involved in politics. Among the most active of these was Cyril of Alexandria, who was born in about 300 AD and died in 444 AD. His claim to fame was his conflict with Nestorius, Bishop of Constantinople. Almost immediately upon his appointment to the leadership of the Christian community, he attempted to dominate the secular government. 
he contributed markedly to the expulsion of Jews from Alexandria, and when his fanatical orthodoxy led to rioting and civil strife, he made no effort to intervene or pacify the public indignation for which he was responsible until the situation was taken over by the civil administration. He continued his attacks on Nestorius until he brought about his excommunication and banishment for heresy. As a result, Nestorian Christianity moved eastward, setting up churches in several parts of Asia and finally reaching China, where it was hospitably received. Clement of Alexandria was the greatest Christian apologist of the second century. The term apologist was given to several early writers who attempted to reconcile Christian and pagan religious and philosophical doctrines. Clement was born about 150 AD in Athens. His parents were pagans, and he followed their religion in his youth. After his conversion, he became the principal spokesperson for the Alexandrian Christian community. He wrote extensively and was particularly concerned with Gnosticism. His approach to this subject in the Stromates, Miscellanies, was most curious. He created a more or less Christian Gnosticism and imposed his own beliefs upon the transcendentalism which had arisen in Alexandria. By advancing what he assumed to be the spirit of true Gnosticism, he must have brought considerable embarrassment upon the non-Christian community. In his Stromatus, he separates the good Gnosis from the bad Gnosis, downgrading as far as possible the esoteric aspects of Egyptian religion. He acknowledged Christian mysteries and felt that they should be respected by followers of the pagan mysteries. Because of Roman persecution, Clement was obliged to leave Alexandria and take refuge in Palestine. The leadership of Alexandrian Christianity passed to Origen, an outstanding theologian who was subject to persecution by all concerned. Clement died in the early years of the third century. In his well-known text, The Exhortation to the Greeks, Clement devotes a considerable section to a venomous attack upon the religion of the Grecian states, including the mystery schools and their principal advocates. In his translation of the principal works of Clement, G. At Butterworth, fellow of the University of Leeds, makes an interesting observation concerning Clement's association with the mystical institutions of his time. Butterworth writes, it seems clear, however, that he was not a Christian to begin with. He's so well acquainted with the mystery cults that there is a strong probability that he'd been initiated into some of them. We have it on his own authority that he wandered through many lands and heard many teachers. Perhaps one explanation of Clement's extreme prejudice was that he flourished during a period when classical learning was at a low ebb. What survived the Greek philosophy was dominated by Roman influences, which were never especially idealistic. His contacts, therefore, were mostly with degenerated forms of the early teachings. It's also evident that Clement was totally unaware of the allegorical and symbolical aspects of the non-Christian religion. It never occurred to him that initiates of the caliber of Pythagoras and Plato regarded the ancient fables as veiled accounts of a sacred doctrine known only to duly qualified and dedicated people. It seems extremely strange that Clement could have lived in Alexandria 
without being influenced by the rather liberal religious atmosphere that prevailed in this North African city. Neoplatonism perpetuated the mystical theology of Plato. Clement must have been aware of the integrity of this school. Had he been open to the interpretations held and disseminated by this group, he should in all fairness have modified his own thinking about the ancient mysteries. Clement gained immense popularity as the church strengthened its position and is regarded as a saint in some Christian communities. It's believed that Origen was born in Alexandria about 185 AD. The accounts of his early life are conflicting. According to Parafi, his parents were pagans, but Ebusius states that he came from a Christian family. Ebusius, however, is known to have had considerable prejudice and a lively imagination. Porphyry tells us that Origen attended lectures given by Ammonius Saccas, and the instruction that he received seemed to have multiplied the difficulties through which he passed. While it's doubtful if any of the early fathers were more orthodox than Origen, there was a wide difference of opinion as to what was orthodox. Most of the controversy that raged around Origen would have little meaning today, and he remains to the present time the greatest of the early Christian teachers. Origen was imprisoned and subjected to torture during the persecution ordered by the emperor Decius. He survived, however, and left this troubled sphere at about 254 AD. At the time of Cyril's succession to the Patriot in 412 AD, the outstanding exponent of Neoplatonism and Greek learning in Alexandria was Hypatia, the daughter of Theon of Smyrna. Hypatia was born in Alexandria about 370 AD and was assassinated in 415 AD. After the death of Theon, Hypatia became the acknowledged leader of the Neoplatonic school in Alexandria. She was a woman of great physical beauty, gentle, and modest, and according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, she was the world's first great female mathematician. The best-known book dealing with her life is Hypatia by Charles Kingsley. Though somewhat fictionalized, it contains considerable useful information. In his preface, Kingsley assures the reader that her personal life was blameless. As a front piece to his book, Kingsley provides a more or less imaginary portrait of this great woman philosopher based upon early descriptions of her appearance. It conveys her spirit, if not her actual likeness. Hypatia's extraordinary endowments attracted the attention of many outstanding intellects of her day, among them Synesius, Bishop of Ptolemais. Cyril found it expedient to dispose of her and Probably with his connivance, she was brutally murdered by followers of Cyril. Dragged from her chariot by a frenzied mob, her flesh was scraped from her bones with oyster shells. After her death, it became evident that the golden age of Alexandrian Neoplatonism had come to an end, and those who shared her conviction departed from the city and sought asylum in distant regions. Almost immediately, the city lost its leadership as a center of learning. Neoplatonism, if it did not originate in Alexandria, reached maturity in this North African community. 
In Egypt, its principal leader was Plotinus, who was born in Egypt at about 204 AD. The Greek branch gained distinction through Proclus, who taught in Athens. He was born shortly before the death of Hypatia. This tragic incident impelled him to remain at a safe distance. The most important of the labors of Proclus was his massive work on the theology of Plato. This was translated into English by Thomas Taylor in the early 19th century, but the edition was so limited that it's little known or appreciated. While the dialogues of Plato certainly include metaphysical teachings, his essentially religious beliefs have been given scant consideration. His viewpoint can be summarized in a brief statement to the effect that the purpose of wisdom is to build a solid foundation under faith. It's usually assumed that the founder of Alexandrian Neoplatonism was Ammonius Saccas. The word Saccas means a porter or luggage carrier, and this humble vocation was his means of livelihood. Many find it difficult to believe that Plotinus could have been a disciple of Ammonius for 11 years unless this luggage carrier had attained to a high degree of mystical illumination. Kenneth Sylvan Guthrie presents a strong argument in favor of Anemius of Apeia as comparatively unknown source of Pythagoreanism, the original Platonic tradition, and he was also acquainted with Oriental beliefs and the learning of the Jews, Magi, and Egyptians. Plotinus lived a great part of his life in Rome where he established an influential school, attended by distinguished politicians and scholars. He lived an exemplary life and became deeply involved in the improvement of youth. Like most of the later Platonists, he was also addicted to allegory and the interpretation of the intricate system of Greek mythology. The last words of Plotinus as recorded by Pryphor were, now I seek to lead back the self within me to the all self. The entire Neoplatonic system was based upon the superiority of internal experience over external education. Neoplatonism established certain disciplines for the preservation and release of the human soul from the tyranny of the intellect, the emotions, and environmental circumstances. The basic disciplines were cathartic to remove from the nature the corruptions caused by vice and intemperance. It's almost certain that the Alexandrian school of Neoplatonism was influenced by Asiatic meditational practices. Classical Greek philosophy was a system of instruction in which wisdom was communicated by initiated teachers to qualified disciples. This method was suitable for the dissemination of traditional knowledge and may be compared to the modern theory of education, which is a descent by authority. The mystical experience was taught as theurgy, a kind of divine magic, free of all material corruptions by which the superior principle abiding in man became the leader of character and conduct. To a great degree, this was the conviction that dominated Alexandria during its golden age. Pythagoras elevated the consciousness of his students by confronting them with geometrical symbols and encouraging meditational and retrospective exercises. 
Plato followed largely the same system, and we learn from Proclus that profound mysticism dominated the inner experiences of the great Athenian age. Gradually, however, intellectualism took over, and human destiny came under the rulership of the mind with its rationalizing power. Neoplatonism sought to deliver the individual from the tyranny of his own intellect. This approach is clearly set forth in the mystical divinity of Dionysus, the Arabachite, and descends to us through St. John of the Cross, who wrote a poem on the super-essential radiance of the divine darkness. One verse will indicate the degree of mystical insight gained by St. John of the Cross. He wrote, I knew not where I entered, for when I stood within, not knowing where I was, I heard great things. What I heard I will not tell. I was there as one who knew not, all science transcending. It was inevitable that the dissensions, which increased in number and violence, would ultimately destroy Alexandria. It was captured by Cherosis in 619, sacked again by another Arabian ruler in 641. The library of Serapium, which had been destroyed by Theodosius, was partly restored until it contained about 300,000 manuscripts, but in 641, the Caliph Omar ordered its final obliteration as follows. If the books contain only what is in the Book of God, the Quran, it is enough for us, and these books are useless. If they contain anything contrary to the holy book, they are pernicious. In any case, burn them. Thus passed one of the noblest eras in human history, destroyed from within itself by wrangling and discord, and finally obliterated by the rise of Islam. The most extraordinary of the Alexandrian schools was that of Gnosticism. It arose in the second century AD, was supported by a number of brilliant devotees, but was overwhelmed by the conflicts with which it was surrounded. The pagan schools regarded the Gnostics with suspicion because it seemed to them that the sect was conquering the Platonic universe with Christian mysticism. The Christians, on the other hand, were equally suspicious because it seemed to them that the Gnostics were using the machinery of the mystery schools to justify messianic dispensation and therefore were making Christianity a part of paganism. A similar dilemma survives to this very day. Esoteric studies in general are rejected by both science and theology. Where religious persecution is no longer fashionable, the obscure arts, which were part of the original Gnostic tradition, are consistently downgraded. The Christian community was at a serious disadvantage because it had no adequate doctrine regarding theogenesis and cosmogenesis. The Greeks had philosophical concepts of the universe to support their rational, ethical, and moral convictions. The Jewish people had the opening chapter of Genesis and numerous commentaries thereon by learned teachers. By uniting the Old and New Testaments, the early church strengthened its position, but still left the universe unexplained. 
Gnosticism may have originated in the Syrian teachings of Simon Magus. G.R.S. Mead discusses this point at some length in his book, Simon Magus. It was in Alexandria, however, that the movement of Gnosticism attained its fruition. The first leader was Basilides, who may have been in contact with East Indian scholars. He was sympathetic to the Christian community and wrote commentaries and interpretations on early Jewish and Christian sacred writings. He was succeeded by the most famous of all Gnostic teachers, Valentinus, who claimed that he had received a vision of the supreme power while he was still an infant. Until recent years, it was difficult to evaluate the deeper aspects of Gnostic learning. The principal available authority was Clement of Alexandria, who devotes considerable space to the Gnostics in his work against heresies. Some have suspected, because of his extensive knowledge of the subject, that Clement may have studied Gnosticism before his conversion to Christianity. The recent discovery of the collection of Gnostic documents in Nag Hammadi in Egypt has markedly altered learned opinion on Gnosticism in general. Most of these manuscripts have been translated and are freely available in print today. The process of evaluation of the manuscripts will continue for years to come. The system of analogy held by the Gnostics has been called emanationism. The divine world is united to the mortal realm through the descent of divine powers and principles. As these descend, corresponding forms rise from the lower regions and finally meet in a middle distance. The human soul is of a twofold nature. Its inner part is divine, but when it descends into bodies, its luminosity is restricted. Thus imprisoned, it becomes the victim of the mortal mind, emotions, and passions, and finally of the physical body itself. Christ was sent to rescue the soul, which, becoming united with the Messiah through a mystical marriage, is restored to its heavenly estate. In the writings of Valentinus, which have recently become available, we perceive a truly lofty spirit whose writings are virtually scriptural. Soter, also known as Savior, signified eternal wisdom, and Sophia, this same wisdom after it had been obscured by immersion in the sphere of generation. Wisdom obscured by worldliness manifests as a worldly wisdom. Sophia, as the wisdom principle in man or the intellectual aspects of the soul, redeems itself by renouncing error. Evolution is the gradual release of spiritual powers through ever-evolving vehicles. In the Gnostic discourses, Mary of Magdala plays a prominent part, and she's presented as particularly learned in the cosmic mysteries. She's included among those permitted to attend the instructions given by Jesus to his apostles after his resurrection. Here, we again note the similarity between Gnostic literature and that strange group of neo-scriptural documents which we mentioned earlier and which appeared during the Alexandrian age. It sometimes seems as though they were revelations resulting from a profound internal experiences and that they have immediate value to modern truth seekers. By the third century AD, the Gnostics were fading from the Alexandrian scene. 
Some of the followers of this school became Christian converts, however, usually retaining some of their earlier Gnostic convictions. The early Gnostic sacred writings were ruthlessly destroyed whenever they were found. Those who refused to recant their heresies departed to other regions to continue their contemplations. About the only relics that have survived are the Gnostic gems, usually decorated by the intaglio designs of curious symbols and even more curious Greek inscriptions. Incidentally, during the Italian Renaissance, many of the Gnostic jewels were copied as part of the program for restoring classical learning. From all the groups we've discussed, we gain the distinct impression that in Alexandria, mysticism first appeared as a separate act of learning a strong revulsion against materialism was spreading throughout the Mediterranean area. Enlightened thinkers rebelled against the restrictions imposed by institutions either pagan or Christian. The human mind was seeking greater insight into the essential meaning of life and living. When members outgrew the tenets of the sects to which they belonged, discontent often led to open rebellion. However, in Alexandria, the conflict of beliefs produced numerous constructive results. Possibly the most important of these was that it impelled the early Christian church to codify its own teachings. It opened the way for St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas. Neither of these teachers would have made as valuable contributions had they not been aware of the Alexandrian schools. The thinkers of that age realized that humanity could not be united on the levels of their divided allegiances. Division belongs to the outside world. The only hope for release from the clash of creeds lies within the individual himself. Only when the soul, purified by devotion and discipline, is permitted its full expression can those who are divided by physical estates be restored to unity by that redeeming power which resides in the world soul and manifests at the very core of every creature. I hope you enjoyed chapter three of The Wisdom of the Knowing Ones by Manly P. Hall. In the next episode, we will be reading chapter four, Meditation Symbols in Christian and Gnostic Mysticism. Thank you for venturing into the unknown with me. Full details about the selected text are available in the episode description. Selected readings are for the purpose of research and study, entertainment and discussion. The views and opinions expressed in the included readings belong to the original authors and creators and may not necessarily reflect my own. The episode description also contains links that will allow you to join the community on social and support the continued production of this podcast. Don't forget to follow the show on your favorite podcast player so you're alerted when new episodes are released. In a wonderland they lie, dreaming as the days go by, dreaming as the summers die, ever drifting down the stream, lingering in the golden gleam, life what is it but a dream? Night, night, bitch.
Thank you.